Hi, all, and welcome back to Roshcast for episode five. Jeff, let's start out with a rapid review based on pearls from prior episodes. Great idea. I think this will work. I'll ask you a few questions first. I hope you remember the finer points we discussed. What are the most common causes of small bowel obstructions? Number one cause of small bowel obstructions are adhesions. And the second most common cause is cancer. That's correct. And in contrast, don't forget that large bowel obstructions are caused most commonly by cancer, followed by volvulus. Next question. What two maneuvers are used to treat a nursemaid's elbow? Nursemaid's elbow is treated by either supination followed by elbow flexion or hyperpronation. The x-ray is typically normal and not necessary. Great. And how do nitrates affect the vasculature? Well, nitrates reduce both preload and afterload by dilating vascular smooth muscles. Your turn. Do you remember the EKG findings in lithium toxicity? Sure. Lithium toxicity can cause bradycardia, T-wave flattening, and QTC prolongation. And Jeff, what is the most common finding in aortic dissection? I got this wrong last time, but I won't this time. The most common finding in aortic dissection is hypertension. Excellent start. Let's move on to some fresh questions. Which of the following requires chemoprophylaxis for meningitis exposure? Is it A, the breastfeeding mother of an infant with E. coli meningitis? B, classmates of a 7-year-old with strep pneuma meningitis? C, the respiratory therapist for a 10-year-old with H. flu meningitis? Or D, roommate of a 19-year-old with Neisseria meningitis? The answer here is choice D, a roommate of a 19-year-old with Neisseria meningitis. All high-risk contacts, which include household members, school contacts in the prior seven days, and patients with direct contact exposure to secretions require prophylaxis. Great. So we've decided we are going to provide prophylactic medications. Which antibiotics are most appropriate here? You actually have several choices in this case. You can take rifampin, 600 milligrams BID for two days with almost 100% effectiveness. You may also take ceftriaxone, 250 milligrams once with 97 to 100% effectiveness. And as a third line agent, you can take Cipro, 500 milligrams once with 90 to 95% effectiveness. While many providers opt for a single dose of ciprofloxacin, remember that rifampin twice a day for two days is the only 100% effective prophylactic regimen. And one more quick antibiotic question before we move on. Before you have culture data, what are the empiric antibiotic choices for those with presumed or confirmed meningitis? For those 18 to 50 years old, we use ceftriaxone and vancomycin. And for those over 50, we add ampicillin to cover listeria. Speaking of the brain, let's move from the covering of the brain to the brain itself. Which of the following is the most likely cause of a patient presenting with bilateral facial nerve palsy? Is it A, Borrelia burgdorferi, B, herpes simplex virus, C, leukemia, or D, mycoplasma pneumonia? This is something we often see in the Northeast. The answer here is choice A, Borrelia burgdorferi, or Lyme disease. That's correct. The question here is referring to a bilateral Bell's palsy, or a bilateral paralysis of the peripheral seventh cranial nerve. Differentiating a central from a peripheral palsy is a critical skill for any emergency physician. Exactly. Forehead paralysis is typically only seen in a peripheral palsy as the forehead receives bilateral innervation centrally. If someone is having a central paralysis, only the lower half of the face will be paralyzed. Although bilateral palsy is rare, Lyme disease caused by Borrelia burgdorferi is one of the few causes. Other causes include Guillain-Barre syndrome, sarcoidosis, meningitis, or bilateral neurofibromas. The other causes here, HSV, leukemia, and mycoplasma pneumonia, are all causes of a unilateral Bell's palsy and are much, much less likely to cause a bilateral palsy. While any sort of paralysis may be very frightening, it's rarely deadly. Since we covered that so quickly, let's move on to the next question, which looks pretty morbid. 
Which of the following is the most common cause of maternal mortality during delivery? Is it A, hemorrhage, B, infection, C, preeclampsia, or D, pulmonary embolism? While all of these conditions are potentially deadly, remember that common things are common and therefore hemorrhage is the most common cause of maternal mortality during delivery. There are quite a few causes for peripartum hemorrhage, the main causes being uterine atony, genital tract trauma, coagulopathy, and retained placental tissue. You named a few really good causes there. So how are each of them treated? Uterine atony is treated with oxytocin or uterine massage. Genital tract trauma is treated with direct pressure or ligation with sutures. Retained products require removal of the placental tissue to stop the hemorrhage. Lastly, in the rare cases of coagulopathy, the treatment is the same as always, with supportive care and product replacement as indicated. Absolutely. Hopefully your obstetrics colleagues will have arrived in the ED by the time you are dealing with many of these conditions, but you must be prepared to address them on your own. Let's move from birth to childhood with a pediatrics question. A four-year-old boy with an upper respiratory infection presents with a facial laceration. Procedural sedation with ketamine is planned for his wound repair. Which of the following is a potential serious adverse reaction? Is it A, elevated intracranial pressure, B, laryngospasm, C, myoclonus, or D, seizure? You absolutely must know this, especially as ketamine becomes more and more common. Laryngospasm is one of the potentially serious adverse reactions to ketamine. And how is it treated? The treatment's pretty simple. Ketamine-induced laryngospasm can be treated with bag valve mask ventilation, which is why you must have all of your airway equipment set up prior to starting procedural sedation. Laryngospasm is more common in kids less than three months old, and interestingly, those with an upper respiratory tract infection. And Jeff, what is the most common adverse event from ketamine? The most common adverse event from ketamine, sometimes exciting, but much, much, much more often frightening, is an emergence phenomenon. This can even continue for days. This is more common in females and adolescents. And do you remember the doses used for sedation? I sure do. If you're trying to avoid placing an IV, the IM dose is 4 to 10 milligrams per kilogram, with 4 milligrams usually being enough. The IV dose is 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram. Ketamine can also be used as an analgesic at doses of 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. Perfect. Let's do a stats question next. Which of these statistical terms describes the risk of committing a type 1 error? Is it A, alpha, B, beta, C, p-value, or D, power? So I know that choice C, the p-value, refers to the probability that the study findings are or are not due to more than just chance. Choice D, power, refers to the probability of detecting a treatment effect at least as great as the treatment effect sought. I get alpha and beta confused all the time, so why don't you get me straight on this one? No problem. The answer here is choice A. The statistical term to describe the risk of committing a type 1 error is alpha. A type 1 error occurs when an apparent difference between two treatment groups is found in a study when in fact the intervention had no real effect. Such errors are typically seen when bias is introduced or when confounding variables are not accounted for. So that's alpha. What's beta used for? Beta is used to describe a type 2 error or presumption that no difference exists between treatment groups when a difference does in fact exist. So let me review this one more time to make sure I get it right, since it's very difficult to remember and very frequently tested. So alpha is for type 1 errors, which is finding a difference when there in fact wasn't one. And beta, or a type 2 error, is when you find no difference when one does actually exist. I think I can handle that. Enough stats for today. Let's take it back to clinical medicine. A 22-year-old man presents after encountering a Portuguese man-of-war in the ocean. He reports significant stinging of the leg with some paresthesias. Which of the following has been shown to be most effective to neutralize additional pneumatocysts? Is it A, 
cold fresh water, B, hydrogen peroxide, C, salt water, or D, vinegar. So this is something we definitely don't see very often, but it's important to remember. The antidote here is choice C, salt water. Envenomation occurs through nematocysts, which cause local pain, paresthesias, and dermatitis. The most severe envenomations can cause nausea, headache, chills, and even cardiopulmonary collapse. Right, and unfortunately, the nematocysts still function after the animal dies or even after they are separated from the animal. They can even stay attached and cause delayed symptoms, which is why the first-line treatment is to remove the nematocysts and wash the area with salt water. For local pain, hot water and topical lidocaine have been shown to be universally beneficial. Let's finish up with some bread-and-butter cardiology. A 33-year-old woman with asthma presents with palpitations. Her vital signs are heart rate 210, blood pressure 118 over 73, and pulse ox of 97% on room air. Her EKG shows AV, nodal reentry tachycardia. Which of the following treatments is contraindicated in the treatment of this patient's disorder? Is it A, beta blocker, B, calcium channel blocker, C, digoxin, or D, synchronized cardioversion? A lot of words here all meant to confuse you. This question is pretty straightforward. Since this patient is an asthmatic, choice A or beta blockers should always be avoided. That's right. AV nodal reentrant tachycardia should first be treated with vagal maneuvers like carotid massage, bearing down, or blowing on a syringe. It can be treated with adenosine, diltiazem, or beta blockers. Right. And for the hemodynamically unstable patients, electrical cardioversion would be the treatment of choice. Cardioversion may also be used for hemodynamically stable patients, but the other chemical means ought to be tried first. Well, that wraps up quite a varied episode, from uterine massage to nematocyst and venomation. Let's run through some pearls, Jeff. Prophylaxis for Neisseria meningitis should be offered to high-risk contacts, including household members, school contacts in the prior seven days, and those with direct exposure to the patient. The preferred antibiotic regimen for prophylaxis is two days of rifampin. Ceftriaxin and ciprofloxacin may also be used, but they are slightly less effective. The most common cause for a bilateral Bell's palsy is Lyme disease. Peripheral palsies can be distinguished from central ones based on involvement of the forehead. The most common cause of maternal mortality during delivery is maternal hemorrhage. Maternal hemorrhage can be caused by uterine atony, which is treated with oxytocin or uterine massage. Genital trauma is treated with pressure or ligation. Retained products require removal to control the hemorrhage. One of the potential serious adverse reactions to ketamine is laryngospasm, which is treated with bag valve mask ventilation. Always remember to set up for procedural sedation with all of your airway equipment, just like you would set up for any old intubation. The emergency reaction from ketamine is the most common adverse effect. Ketamine can be given IM or IV, and can also be used for analgesia in lieu of opiates at a dose of 0.1 to 0.3 mg per kg. The term alpha describes a type 1 error, detecting an effect that is not present. A type 2 error or beta is failing to detect an effect that is present. Nematocyst envenomation is treated by immediate removal followed by saltwater wash. In a stable asthmatic patient with AV nodal reentry tachycardia, beta blockers should be avoided. Options for treatment include calcium channel blockers, digoxin, or electrical synchronized cardioversion for hemodynamically unstable or refractory cases. All right, that wraps up this week's episode. See you all next time.